0: Good morning, please open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. This morning our our attention will be focused on verses 4 and 5, but we'll begin by reading verses 2 through 5. So if you would please stand with me. We'll read those four verses, and then we'll ask for the Lord to bless us as we study His word together. First Thessalonians chapter one, beginning in verse two. "For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Let's pray. Father, we come to you on this Sunday morning as we have every Sunday morning for 12 years and we ask that you would open our minds and hearts to understand the scriptures. And we believe this morning what we have always believed and that is that your Holy Spirit Lives inside of all of those who believe. And so, even though the the vast majority of our number are not in the same room this morning, the Spirit unites us in one faith. And we have our Bibles open to the same passage of Scripture. And this one Spirit is opening to us the gospel of Jesus Christ and applying it to us together. We thank you for this truth, Father. And we ask you to comfort us in that reality and to move us to rejoice in the truth that we find in these verses this morning, to rejoice in the truth that we are loved by you, our eternal God. We pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus himself. Amen. You may be seated. We're worshiping together via the internet just a month after our first service in this new building. We have among us uh, in our membership those who are on the front lines fighting this disease in the medical field. We also have among our number those who are first responders. And some of these folks who are on the front lines, they are themselves those who have underlying medical conditions that make them more susceptible than the average person to to the disease. These same folks, some of them are going home to people every day who have these underlying conditions that make them susceptible to the disease. Still others in our congregation are out of work, having no idea when they'll be able to return to work, and some have no idea how they're going to pay their bills, Some of us are small business owners, wondering whether there will be a business when this is all over. Others of us have an abundance of time on our hands, and with that, an abundance of temptation. Some families are spending so much time together that relational issues are surfacing. And so, all of us are experiencing in varying degrees, danger, stress, and uncertainty. Danger stress and uncertainty and when you look at it that way when you look at our circumstances in that frame the book of 1st Thessalonians would appear to be quite timely for us see the the Thessalonians were committed believers who were living in dangerous stressful uncertain circumstances persecution was all around them and they were ostracized not only socially, but they were ostracized in the marketplace. Their livelihoods were at stake because they followed Christ. And yet, in the midst of all of that, they were doing well spiritually. Paul was overjoyed to hear from Timothy that they, that they had this working faith and laboring love. serves to remind us that in the midst of danger, stress, and uncertainty, we can rejoice in, in this. We have a great shelter in the love of God. We may succumb to viruses, cancer, heart disease, bankruptcy, you name it. We are loved by God eternally. The eternal God of the universe has chosen us. He's snatched us from spiritual death so that we would know eternal salvation in Christ. And so our text this morning calls us, even as, even as we are saddened by events of late and saddened by the fact that we cannot be together, it calls us to rejoice and to thank God for His great electing love in this time of, of difficulty. So as we begin, let's let's consider, once again, the context. Verses 2 and 3, which we looked at last week, we we find Paul there giving thanks for the Thessalonians as he remembers their work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And and these verses that we're looking at this morning, verses 4 and 5, continue that same long Greek sentence in our translations We'll, we'll break this long sentence up into three sentences typically. It, it's possible to render this Greek sentence in one English sentence, but it's super cumbersome and we don't talk that way, so our English Bibles have, have broken it up. But in these verses, Paul's explaining why he thanks God for what he sees in the Thessalonians. We touched briefly on it last week. It'll be, it'll, it'll be, it'll be broader and deeper this morning, but, but first of all, our salvation is a result of God's electing love. Our salvation is a result of God's electing love. Paul, Paul is essentially expressing thanksgiving for the Thessalonians' salvation. And he's thanking God because our salvation is a result of God's electing, that is God's choosing, love. So look, look with me again at verse 4. For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you Now that is a bold thing to say We know that God has chosen you How, how could Paul, Silvanus, Timothy How could they possibly know that? Well, because of Paul's theological understanding he, see, he sees working faith, laboring love, and persevering hope And he deduces that they are saved Because only the saved have those things And then, knowing that they are saved, he deduces that God has chosen them because only those whom God has chosen are saved. And because he knows that God has chosen them, Paul then deduces that they are loved by God. Now, how does Paul know? How does he know that only those whom God has chosen are saved? Well, he he knows the Bible. Paul understands that the fall back in Genesis 3 necessitated God's choosing to save certain sinners. See, Paul reads the Old Testament and he sees, he sees that man in his natural state is dead in his trespasses and sins. When, when Adam sinned in the garden... He died spiritually. He became enslaved to sin. He became fallen in every aspect of his personality. This is what we call the doctrine of, of total depravity. It means that man has been fall, he's fallen in his mind, in his will, his emotions, his affections. E- even his body, everything about him is affected by his sin. The totality of his person is depraved. Man naturally then runs from God, rebels against God, hates God. And the natural course of, of man's heart is seen in Genesis 6:5, just before the flood of Noah. Genesis 6:5 reads this way: "The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually." That, that is a devastating assessment of the depth of our depravity, every intention. Of the thoughts of the human heart is only evil continual, continually. And the situation is so bleak as, as Paul reads the Old Testament that he, he, he gets together this laundry list of, of Old Testament passages to that same effect and he, and he puts them all together in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, where he writes this None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, who is Paul talking to in Romans chapter 3? Well, the previous verse, Romans 3, 9, tells us that he's talking about everybody, all people on the face of the earth. The key there is that no one seeks for God. Everyone has turned aside. And even the people that we might think who would be the most likely to turn to God and to love Him with all their hearts, that is the Jews of the Old Testament, even they don't do that. Rather, the story of the Old Testament is is that these, these people of God who were afforded all the blessings of God and all the revelation of God, the covenants of God, the protection of God, even they turn away and worship false gods. Man is totally depraved. Man can't serve God, doesn't want to. And he, he needs to be rescued, not only from the penalty of his sin, which is eternity in hell, but he needs to be rescued from his own heart, his own heart, which leads him away from God. He can't even change. His, his God owes man his eternal wrath. The Bible teaches that God is not morally neutral to these things every act of rebellion is a profound personal offense against the holiness of God and yet he is the only one who can save us and so if anyone would be saved god must choose to do it and he must choose Whom He's going to save. But we don't have to deduce the doctrine of God's gracious election from the doctrine of man's total depravity because election is explicitly and clearly and pervasively taught in the Scriptures. God is an electing God. God chooses to set His special covenant love upon certain people we find this from the earliest pages of the scripture he chose Abram to the exclusion of everyone else on the planet he chose the people of Israel to be his special possession to the exclusion of every other nation on the earth and when Paul wants to explain the election of the individual to salvation it is to all of those old testament persons that he points Romans chapter 9 is a classic text to that point there Paul anticipates a question from his readers. Is it that God's word has failed? That the Jews have not found, found salvation? And, and Paul, Paul answers, no, not at all. God chooses who will be saved. God chose Isaac and not Ishmael, Paul shows. Paul chose. God chose Jacob and not Esau. Paul also juxtaposes Moses with Pharaoh in that text. And here's a crucial sentence in Romans 9.16. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And then two verses later, Paul writes, so then he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And the key to all of this is that it is Mercy for God to choose to save any. All deserve eternity in hell. All. 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 For God to save one would be unfathomable grace. And many, many more texts could be marshaled to make this very point. John chapter 1. John chapter 6. John chapter 10. 1 Peter chapters 1 and 2. On and on. Pastor Rick read for us from Ephesians 1 this morning, telling us of God choosing us in Christ before the foundation of the world, this God who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Now what is it, what is it that would move this God who is so perfectly just, what would move Him to save any of His enemies? I would encourage you to write down Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 4, which reads, But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. What is it that moves God to save any sinners? It is that God loves. God's love moves Him to to, to save. Paul calls the, the Thessalonians here brothers loved By God. God chooses to save those upon whom He has set His perfect love. And many of us can't help but but wonder, well, doesn't God love everyone the same way? And I I don't want to act as if this is is a a super easy question to answer. I would recommend to you a book by D.A. Carson called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God, the very thorough book in which he discusses all of the ways that God is, is shown to love in the Bible. But if we're talking about God's electing love, which is what we are seeing here in First Thessalonians 1, and if the Bible is going to dictate what we believe, then we have to say, no, God does not love everyone the same. Paul writes in Romans 9, quoting from Malachi 1, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. I would encourage you to write down Deuteronomy chapter 7 and read that on your own time. There God explains not only that God has a special love for those whom He has chosen, but also that His love has nothing to do with anything worthwhile in those whom He loves. And that's part of what makes this love so amazing. I mean, think about our natural tendency. Our natural tendency is to hate people who do us wrong. To hate our enemies. And and every single one of us can identify with that. We have hated our enemies. We naturally love those who love us. Now, if God was like that, He wouldn't love anyone. Because in the entire sea of humanity, from the beginning to this day, Every man, woman, boy, and girl has hated God, rebelled against Him, gleefully acted as His enemy. So if God were going to love anyone, it would have to be an enemy. And so logically, it can't be anything in the individual that draws God's love upon them. Deuteronomy 7 teaches, God set His love upon you, not because you're bigger, stronger, prettier, smarter than anybody else, you had Nothing to commend you to God. And neither did I. He set his love upon us because he set his love upon us. And what should this do in us? It should cause a tremendous sense of security in his love. What a relief. We didn't earn his love we couldn't earn his love. And if there's, if there's nothing that we could do to earn his love, there's nothing that we can do to unearn his love. What a relief. God's electing love is not conditioned upon us and we should enjoy a wonderful sense of security in him. This love should also move us to deep humility. Humility. This is Paul's conclusion in Ephesians 2 and many other places. Because our salvation is all of God's grace, all of God's electing love. There is no room for anyone to boast before God. Ephesians 2.9, 1 Corinthians 1.29, Romans 3.27, Romans 4.2, Romans 11.6. Salvation from first to last. It's a gift of God's electing love. Now Paul and his companions know that the Thessalonians have been chosen by God and that God has set his electing love on them. How do they know that? Well, because of the gracious markers of salvation that we've seen in verse 3 from last week. But also, they know this because of how the gospel was applied to them, which brings us to to the next point, and that is this. Our salvation is effected by the Spirit's application of the gospel of Christ. Our salvation is effected by the Spirit's application of the gospel of Christ. And this also is necessary because of our deadness in sin. Look with me at the first part of verse 5. 1 Thessalonians 1, 1.5. He says, we, we know that you've been chosen by God because... Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. Now, we're still thinking about the electing love of God in the context of our total depravity. God doesn't just choose a person, but He then acts upon them to bring them to salvation. And this is completely necessary because of their deadness and sin. Paul says, Our gospel came to you not only in word. Now, every time the gospel is shared, it comes in word. The word of the gospel is, is the verbal message that God has saved doomed sinners by sending His Son to redeem them by His righteous life and atoning death. Jesus lived righteously on behalf of sinners so that His righteousness might be imputed to them. And He died on behalf of sinners, paying the penalty for their sin. He was resurrected three days later as God's seal of approval on His suffering, signaling that Jesus was victorious over sin and death. The Bible teaches us that all those who repent and trust in Christ are, are reconciled to the Father forevermore because of Christ's life and death and resurrection. Now that gospel comes in word every time we share it. And and those of us who who have shared it, we know exactly what Paul means when he talks about the gospel coming in word only. Sometimes the listener hears, even understands everything that, that we say sometimes even agrees with the gospel but in their deadness in sin they refuse to repent they refuse to surrender their lives to Christ in faith so so what is it about the thessalonians how, how were they saved by the gospel? Why did the gospel come savingly to the Thessalonians? Well, Paul says the gospel came to them not only in word, but also in power. That is, it did something in them. It accomplished a task. If you, if you were to skip down in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 2:13, you'll see Paul describing the work of God, as, I mean, the word of God, as being at work in the Thessalonians. The Word of God acts. it's powerful. Now power in the New Testament is, is frequently attached to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Power in the New Testament is frequently attached to the, to the Holy Spirit. I want to give you just a smattering of references to this effect. Luke 1.35 Luke one thirty five, Luke 4.14 Acts 1.8 Acts 10.38 I could give you another dozen, but, but don't have the time. When the gospel comes in power, every time it comes in power, it is the Spirit who is wielding that power. Now, we've, we've already talked about how our natural state is deadness in sin. When, when we hear the word of the gospel in our deadness, we, we don't have the capacity, we don't have the inclination to heed it because we are dead we, we must be brought to life in order to heed the gospel. The theologians call, call this regeneration. That, that being brought to life to understand the truth of the gospel and to want the gospel is regeneration. Now, our deadness and sin, that, that was our situation before we came to Christ. We were dead, unable to he- heed the gospel, and not even wanting to. We, we all sworn enemies of God, breathing lies against Him, loving to blaspheme His holiness. Now, what would God do? What would God do in our deadness as we were hearing the gospel? You know, ju- justice would require that he just leave us dead and send us to hell. But in love, he killed our sin and death in Christ and gave us life through the Spirit applying the gospel to us. Now, listen to this. Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. He's talking about spiritual life. Jesus also says in John 3 8 that those who are saved are born of the Spirit. They're given new life by the Spirit. The Spirit is the member of the Trinity who brings the dead to spiritual life. We find it also in Titus chapter 3 verse 5, where Paul writes that he saved us. God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. This work of the Holy Spirit is a fulfillment of the new covenant that we read about in the prophets, and especially in Ezekiel chapters 36 and 37. Ezekiel 36 and 37. In Ezekiel 36, we get this promise of the indwelling Spirit in the new covenant. And then in chapter 37, There's that vision of the valley of dry bones where the Lord commands Ezekiel to prophesy over the dry bones. Those dry bones represent humanity dead in their trespasses and sins. And in Ezekiel 37.5, the Lord says, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And then we we read about Ezekiel prophesying over those bones in this vision as, as God commanded. And breath enters them and the bones live. And then in verse 14, Ezekiel 37, 14, God interprets the vision for us. He says, I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. Now the the Hebrew word for spirit there and breath in verse 5, it's the same word. He's saying the spirit is that breath that I put in you that gives you life. When the gospel is preached, the spirit comes in power upon the dead sinner, invades them and gives them spiritual life. But he takes those whom God has chosen and wakens them from the dead. And what is the immediate result? It's Conviction, Paul says, it's conviction. The word came not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And I wonder how many of us can, can remember that feeling, that feeling. And here conviction is not just an awareness of our guilt before the Lord, but full conviction here is certainty that this gospel is true and it's true for me. When the Holy Spirit takes this gospel and powerfully applies it to my life, my eyes are opened and I see that this God is holy and He is worthy of worship and I am sinful. I am worthy of eternal damnation and I am doomed unless somebody saves me. And it is true that only Jesus can save me. Only His righteousness, only His righteousness can save me. Only His death can, can pay for my sins. There's nothing that I can do. I'm doomed. But full conviction goes beyond just regarding these facts as true. This full conviction of the Holy Spirit moves the sinner to see the beauty of Christ and the desirability of reconciliation with the Father. And it leads the sinner to say, oh, Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy on me. Save me, please. I turn away from my sin. I only want you. Please own me. I surrender all. Full conviction is this absolute certainty that that is the only appropriate response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's a work of the Holy Spirit. Spirit. When the Holy Spirit mightily wields the gospel of Christ, He regenerates us and He brings this glorious, full conviction upon us and graciously, graciously, graciously makes Christ our sincere desire. He takes this sinner who said, I hate God, and He he makes them repentant, gives them a repentant heart that says, Oh, Jesus, make me yours. And how many of us then have lived the truth of 1 Corinthians 1.18, which says this, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We have all been in that former camp. Those of us who are in Christ are now in that latter camp. That is a work of the Holy Spirit to move us from one place to the other. What manner of love is this that doesn't simply make salvation possible for us but snatches enemies from death and places us in Christ and makes us sons and daughters of the Most High? Now, friends and family at home, I I wonder what things have occupied your mind this week. Certainly many of us have, have thought about, talked about, when, when is this corona, vi, coronavirus crisis going to end? Are, 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 are we going to survive? Are, are, are family members that are particularly vulnerable, are they going to make it? How are we going to make it financially? And these are all pertinent questions. Let me lovingly put in front of you that this crisis will come and go, as will this, this life What does the Bible say about the steadfast love of the Lord? It endures what? It endures forever. And even as we give appropriate attention to to temporal things, let us all the more give appropriate attention to eternal things. Meditating on and speaking about this powerful, electing, rescuing love of God that he has set upon us. One final gracious work of God's love on display in these verses is this. Our salvation commends the truth to others. Our salvation commends the truth to others. Let's look at the last part of verse 5. 1 Thessalonians 1.5 You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Now, this is one of the places where our English translations will take that long Greek sentence and break it and make it into a new sentence. Now, to do that, most of our translations will omit one little Greek word that we would translate just as. Just as you know what kind of men we've proved to be among you for your sake. That little word is helpful Because it shows what this has to do with the rest of the context. And so what Paul is saying in this long sentence is, we know of your saving faith just as you know the example of faith that we have set for you. You know what kind of men we've proved to be among you for your sake. We've lived a certain way among you for your good. And it's not just that Paul and Sylvanus and Timothy put on a show, they didn't just act a certain way, but he says, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And this forecasts a theme that we're going to see going forward in this letter. We intentionally modeled working faith for you. There will be much more like this in the coming three chapters. Paul and his ministry companions were very intentional, not just to teach truth and share the gospel, but to live it in front of the Thessalonians. And so in the context, what Paul means is, you know how our working faith and laboring love and persevering hope commended the gospel to you. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy commended the truth of the gospel in at least three ways. At least three ways. First of all, the Holy Spirit uses the lives of true believers to testify to the veracity of the gospel that they preach. The Holy Spirit uses the lives of true believers to testify to the veracity of the gospel they preach. We preach a gospel about a God who, through the work of Christ, transforms sinners who hated God and one another into saints who love God and one another. That is our gospel. And so when we live lives of love for God and love for one another, it leads straight to one conclusion. The gospel we preach must be true. And the opposite holds as well. When we preach that gospel, but then demonstrate lives of hatred for God and hatred for man, there's no other conclusion that the hearer can make but that our gospel is nonsense. And it's likely the case that some of the Thessalonians were converted by the preaching of the gospel, both verbally and non-verbally, via the gospel example of these men. Second, the Holy Spirit uses the lives of true believers to confirm the truth of the gospel to new believers. He uses the lives of true believers to confirm, confirm the truth of the gospel to new believers when when, when people come into the faith, testing comes into their life as well. And God uses the lives of older saints in the faith to confirm to those new believers who may be doubting, yes, this gospel actually is true. Look at these people who have who've been in the faith much longer than I have. I know that the gospel is true because they are still in Christ. I know that the gospel is true. Third, the Holy Spirit uses true believers to set a godly example for others in the faith. He uses true believers to set a godly example for those in the faith. Lord willing, we'll spend a good bit of time in, in, on this concept next Sunday. Discipleship is, in a sense, imitating Christ in front of other believers so that they imitate you. By, by God's kindness, I have the privilege of serving with God These godly elders here at Providence Bible Fellowship, I'm surrounded by imitators of Jesus, and so their imitation of Him, I find to be incredibly infectious, and I would consider myself to be an imitator of their imitation of Jesus. We are imitators of imitators in discipleship, and God gives us the joy of being that for other believers in His church. The bottom line for us this morning is that those who proclaim the gospel, for those who proclaim the gospel, it matters how we live. If we love the Lord and love one another, we will think about how our life is affecting the faith of others. With my life, am I denying the gospel to the unsaved? Or with my life, am I speaking truth to the unsaved. With my life, am I discouraging the saved or with my life am I encouraging the saved? As, as you have responded to the coronavirus, I wonder have people heard hope from you or despair? If it's the former, I would say with Paul in the rest of this letter just press on and do more and more, more and more. If it's the latter, then let's return to the reality of of the eternity of God's love and what it says about every circumstance. We have eternal hope in the Lord Jesus Christ because God loved us from eternity past and chose us. We are secure in Him. We have hope in every circumstance. And so we should live that in front of one another. We should live that in front of the world. We of all people in this time should be people of hope. Danger. Stress, uncertainty. Those are our circumstances, our temporal circumstances. What wonderful perspective the gospel brings to these things. What a wonderful shelter the electing love of God is in times like these. We are loved by God. And we talk about this so much, we sing about it so much that we can become a little desensitized to it. That's why we need to return to the gospel over and over and over. We need to think about our former, our former manner of life. We hated God. We rebelled against Him. We breathed lies against Him. But He has loved us from eternity past. It is astounding that we could say this is true of us. As the letter of 1 Thessalonians is intended to encourage the faithful, so we should encourage one another by the truth of God's love. This is what Paul encourages the Thessalonians to do in this letter. He says, encourage one another with these words. So Providence, I would call on you, brothers and sisters, meditate on these things. Think deeply about these things. Rejoice and speak these things to one another so that all may be built up and encouraged in the Lord and so that those who have no hope may understand that there is hope in Jesus Christ who gave his life that we might know God eternally I'm going to pray and then we will as is our custom observe a a moment of silent reflection before before we close let's pray Father, we stand before you as formerly estranged sinners, but now sons and daughters of the Most High. And we recognize before you, Father, that this has absolutely nothing to do with anything that we have earned. For we have only ever earned your eternal wrath. But because of your mercy you are rich in mercy because of your great love with which you've loved us you chose from eternity past to rescue us from our deadness and sin by the life death and resurrection of your son whom you gave for us we ask father that in these difficult days when we are in danger when we are in distress we live in moment by moment, day by day uncertainty that we will rest in the shelter and certainty of your perfect, eternal, electing love, which says to us, Come what may, on the other side of this life lies eternity with you. We look forward to that, Father. We pray that in the meantime, you would grant us to love you well, love one another well, to live lives of of faith and love and hope in front of one another and in front of the world that we might commend the gospel to them and be faithful to you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.